you are listening to Hungry Books, a podcast about the best books ever written on the subject of food. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook and author. And each episode, I present a book that will change your life. Hungry Books In today's episode, I will dissect a book called Delizia, the epic story of the Italians and their food by John Dickey. The story that this book tells us is not one about Italian mamas cooking in dreamy rural towns in the meadows. It is actually the story of the chaotic, fast and exhilarating urban food. Because it was in the hungry cities where Italians shaped the foods that built what we know today as Italian cuisine. Now, every cultural cliché behind the way Italians are viewed is, well, somehow echoed in the way they themselves have shaped their culture. As the author explains, it is lavish, eccentric, loud, and it reflects its complex politics and economics. But it is also a cuisine with an admirable ingenuity that was built upon traditions that stretch back to the Roman Empire. Italian has been for decades one of the world's most popular cuisines. We all know that. But what makes it so delicious and how did it spread? Well, this book is filled with surprising and unexpected revelations, like the fact that many recipes became political propaganda and that hunger and war were key in shaping how people ate, even more so than peace and abundance. Delizia, the epic story of the Italians and their food, is a true culinary thriller that is as enticing as it is revealing about how migration, cultural exchange and shifting identities are the true pillars of a culinary tradition that tells the story of the people that made it one dish at a time. This show only happens if you make it happen. And you can do so by sharing this podcast getting the books I've reviewed using the links on this episode's description, and you can even buy me a virtual coffee via buymeacoffee.com. All the links are, of course, in this episode's notes. Allora, andiamo with the show. Very few cuisines in the world are so idealized and culturally charged with such deep romanticism. And in this case, we're talking about a country that is as inextricably chaotic, loud and vibrant as it is complex and alluring in its love affair with enjoying life at all costs. And that's exactly what the imagined tale of Italian romantic life is. Large families gathering around feasts, pouring wines made with sun-kissed grapes and a stream of dishes that only an emperor could ever dream of. But this book paints a very different version of this by peeling the layers that created this fairy tale of a cuisine and a nation that found in food a way to redefine their identity. As it often happens with national cuisines, well, are often defined by individual dishes. Think of Moroccan tagine, Hungarian goulash or Spanish paella. 
But the reason why they rose to popularity within their own country of origin and outside, it's always linked to a culturally charged period in which certain ingredients, techniques or practices around the preparation or consumption of these foods became the language of power, a specific ideology, an expression of a religious belief, or even the result of the tug of war between periods of scarcity and abundance. The case of modern Italian food, as Dicky says, is rooted in the imperial culture of Rome. When a deliberate effort to create the notion of unity under one defined identity saw the use of food as a language of politics, religion, business and entertainment all rolled into dishes that conveyed these messages of opulence and power. The cultural symbolism of Roman feasting is still very much at the heart of the mythological origin of Italian food. Now, the author does something very clever here, because he follows the thread of the humble pasta, specifically spaghetti, to take us to the revealing journey of a food that, like pasta itself, became the carrier of a rich cultural history. That is seldom told. Now, it turns out that in the Western world, we've unknowingly helped perpetrating the myth that Marco Polo was single-handedly responsible for introducing noodles into Europe. But tempting and charming as the idea might be, it is far from the way things developed. Now, according to John Dickey, the arrival of a food remarkably similar to spaghetti into Sicily came by the hands of Muslim invaders at least 150 years before Mr. Polo was even born. It is fair to mention here that uh, these Arab diaspora secured the strength of their merchant routes that expanded from the Middle East to Asia, Europe and several other routes crossing the Balkans and the Mediterranean Sea. The fact that pasta is so easy to prepare at home and you only need basic tools and three ingredients to do so, only eggs, flour and salt suffice, meant that its popularization had very little technical and economic barriers. But while the long history of the evolution of the dozens of pasta shapes and the many dishes that can be prepared with them can take up a whole book in itself, it is not something that this book actually spends too much time dwelling on. Because what's more interesting than that, in my opinion, and apparently the authors too, <laughs> is how the myth of Marco Polo as the pasta bearer was actually created in the US by macaroni manufacturers as part of their marketing campaign as an um, effort to build a mythical origin of an otherwise humble staple. What this story illustrates in the first section of the book is the way in which our modern stories about food are often the product not of tradition and legacy, but of deliberate actions to shape narratives. John Dickey insists that it is a mistake to tie the origin of modern Italian cuisine to peasant and rural traditions. Because, he says, the staples that form the most representative Italian dishes and practices are actually the result of urban dynamics. That is, Italian food is city food through and through. But that is not to say that there are elements that trickled from individual regions and settings into the urban practices. But it's mostly down to the work of 
city cooks that these ingredients came together in very specific ways. Hence, the dishes that we recognize today as Italian are all urban creations. Let me expand on this, because the book makes the case that it was at the busy urban markets of the great cities, where people were able to exchange techniques, recipes and borrow inspiration to come up with new dishes in a very competitive environment where food was always a way to convey a message of opulence and power, and this accelerated the process. There are many, many examples of this phenomena in which foods bear in their name a connection to a specific city where they were created or made famous. Think of pesto trapanese, pizza napoletana, parmigiano reggiano, lasagna di Bologna, polenta de Trentino, osobuco de Milano, and so on and so forth. I find very seducing the idea that the origins of city branding as food destinations was quite possibly originated in Italy from the Renaissance period onwards, and the whole identity of entire regions became defined somehow by these products and the people who collectively worked to defend the reputation of the quality of these foods. And now, speaking of specific foods, Dicky gives a special mention to reviewing the case of Pizza Napolitana, which became a fast food staple of the busy life in Naples, a city that is located in the southwest of Italy, actually not too far from the mythical Vesuvius and Pompeii. As a port was a historical hotspot for many close encounters with intercontinental traders, long before welcoming the delicious produce from the New World, specifically from Mexico, such as tomatoes and chiles. But the actual flatbreads that served as inspiration to the world of pizza were, as food historians say and John Dickey supports, brought into Italy by Ottoman traders. In fact, pizza's ancient origins take us back to a rather sweet version of them, made with almond paste that slowly morphed into a savoury crust topped with ingredients ranging from tomatoes, sardines, cheese, herbs, charcuterie, etc. It is allegedly after a visit of Queen Margherita of Savoy, wife of Umberto I, who tired of stodgy and pretentious French food, or so legend has it, was all too happy to settle for one of those working-class foods that everyone in Naples seemed to rage about, which consisted of flat base of dough made of wheat flour and topped with a simple mix of tomato sauce, mozzarella and basil that happened to coincide with the colours of the Italian flag. And so that is how this pizza became rapidly rebranded as Pizza Margherita by celebrity pizzaiolo or pizza maker Raffaele Esposito, who cooked this classic version for the Queen in 1884. But how did the humble pasta become one of America's most loved staple? And What does it say about the American dream and America's own ability to embrace foreign food traditions? 
Well, to answer these questions, John Dickey explains that the widespread use of certain emblematic foods from Italian cuisine or Italian-inspired origin actually came hand in hand with the mass migration of Italians into the US. But it took at least three generations to reinvent itself and change to a point that will make them appealing to a non-Italian market. Italian immigrants from all backgrounds and origins, but mostly from impoverished rural areas who were hungry and destitute, had very little to lose by embarking on a one-way transatlantic journey to America. Italians represent or represented, I don't know, one of the world's most robust migrant diasporas. And their presence in the Americas, specifically in the US, was particularly significant in the shaping of many foods that became internationally recognized as typically Italian, but only, as I said earlier, after enduring a complex transformation. Without victimizing immigrants, the book casts lights on the harsh realities of the people who found no other choice but to leave everything they knew to survive. In fact, the moving expression, mi emigro per mangiar, I'm emigrating so I can eat, still resonates with deep impact in our modern world. We learn from example that the food that Italian immigrants cooked and ate in the US wasn't quite a nostalgic reproduction of home-style dishes from their mamas. In fact, it was a reflection of what they called the food of peasants' dreams. So, of course, having paying jobs as immigrants, crappy as they were, meant that they could finally afford the food they only dreamed about eating while they were in Italy. Americans, however, saw their food, the Italians' food, with a very typical suspicion. While some were curious and willing to try it, many actually opposed fervently to the idea of ever doing it, complaining about it being too spicy, with too much garlic, that most certainly increased the desire to drink alcohol. <laughs> Alas, the timing was indeed a tricky one, as prohibition was in full force, and very little appreciation was spared for anything that might pose a threat to the prohibition movement. Immigrants really never have had it easy. I mean, they left Italy with a heavy heart. And most of the time, they had no idea about what awaited for them in America. And once they managed to sort of get back on their feet and went back home to visit relatives in Italy, that came with the inevitable backlash of a cultural clash. Migration and shifting identities are a whole subject in itself, but what it is carefully laid out in the book is its fascinating dynamic when, quote-unquote, the returned Americani or Americanized Italians were often seen as deviants and victims of some sort of moral disorder when they were back in Italy. And they were even mocked in popular culture Perhaps one of the best examples is Renato Carosone's song to Bofala Americano that mocks the way of dressing of the Americani, their pastimes, their airs of, you know, like men of the world, while still being dependent on the bank of mom to pay for their cigarettes. Have a listen to this song. <laughs> Portega su nu gunu ste marreta 
Na cupulella que vicierà i tata. Passa scampaniana battuleta. Com mano appavata fa guarda. Tu fa l'americano, americano, americano. Senta me chi do fa fa. Tu vuoi vivere alla moda, ma se bevi whisky and soda, poi siente disturbato. Tu a ballo rock and roll, tu gioca baseball, fai sorte per camella, chi te li dà la borsetta di mamma, tu fa l'americano, americano, americano. Ma si nati in Italia, senta a me non c'è sta niente a fa, ok Napolitan, tu fa l'americano, tu fa l'americano, tu fa l'americano, tu fa l'americano. It wasn't until the very late 1920s when pasta, specifically spaghetti and macaroni, became slowly embraced and repacked for mass consumption, targeting the American market. So America, at this point, was in the middle of a love affair with industrialization and creating a way to mass-produce foods that won't seem otherwise unintelligible, difficult or too foreign to be embraced, in spite of the snobbery, racism and disgust at the idea of eating foreign food, an imminent shift brought in uh, partly by the impact of the Second World War along with rationing and the rise of dried, teened and pre-prepared convenience foods that was all that was needed for pasta to finally be embraced as an everyday staple. There is a passage in the book which I find quite amusing and great to illustrate the role that food has always played in politics. And John Dickey provides us with a great example of this. And it turns out that in the thickest period of fascism in the 1930s, Benito Mussolini, like the Grand Caesar he certainly viewed himself as, carried his vision to propel the whole nation into a golden age of industrialization and modernity, leaving away the primitive peasant way of life, was imperative. And he saw in pasta an enemy that was in the way of achieving this. He claimed that pasta made people heavy and brutish and fooled them into thinking that it was nutritious. More outrageously, he detested pizza. God give me strength. Instead, he campaigned for dishes like risotto. But also, he pursued a crazy nationalist policy of economic independence. But all in all, and without defending Mussolini, there was certain logic in that. And that is that if the population of Italy was to grow, he knew that there wasn't enough capacity for the nation to produce enough wheat, and rice was certainly more versatile, cheap and easy to produce. Also, the fact that the early forms of pizza, that were simple pieces of flat dough topped with a smear of tomato or lard, with a couple of smelly sardines that were thrown along with some garlic, were perceived as poor people's food. And on top of that, Naples was famously unhealthy and there were constant outbreaks of cholera, which is a disease caused, well, by the presence of human feces in water supplies or food. So the immediate association of anything coming from Naples with something disgusting and dangerous, well, was hardly a surprise. But, and going back to Mussolini's agenda, 
He also promoted the consumption of industrialized foods and heavily processed meats that proved a step too far when it came to culinary innovation. Hence, they were seen with skepticism and total mistrust. And luckily, Mussolini's antipasta campaign didn't catch on. And as for pizza, well, it had to wait for another 30 years because it wasn't really until the 1960s that pizza became a national favorite. A few decades later, way into the 1970s, the effects of the newly appreciation and embracement of Italian food in the US, in spite of all its makeover, was very evident in the dozens of recipes created using pasta and other Italian products that populated columns and women's magazines. On the other hand, post-war Europe itself was beginning to reinvent itself and the hardships of food rationing gave way to rediscovering and embracing the simple but bewitching idea of the Mediterranean landscape and the air of sophistication that southern Spain had and the orgy of textures in Greek food and of course the impossibly romantic settings of Italian cities and rural villas and the promise of marvelous feasts. <laughs> it is no wonder why the modern media industry, along with international cookbooks, that one single book by the Italian equivalent of Nigella Lawson, Sophia Loren, who armed with an unlimited repertoire of adjectives and a totally unnecessary but very effective sexualization of cooking and eating, turned the collection of books in Cucina con Amore almost single-handedly transformed the way in which Italians related to their own food and made evident the power that gastronomy had in galvanizing the Italian identity. Perhaps the most enduring and profound effect of these renaissance of sorts of Italian food is that for the first time, Italians themselves made amends with their own traditional foods. And instead of only focusing the attention on their micro-region-centered vision, food did what no government has ever done for Italy, which was unifying the nation. And in spite of Italy's own process of industrialization that forced people to debate themselves whether to buy ready-made pasta or spend hours in the kitchen while trying to have a full-time job, well, it's easy to see why the idea of handmade food and the fairy tale of never-ending family dinners lives at the heart of the collective imagination. However, what more comfort can a family have in life than to sit around an abundant, freshly made dinner that reaffirms that everything is okay and life is good. I mean, who cares if the tortellini came from a plastic bag? The last part of the book is almost entirely dedicated to the rising of a whole new appreciation for the gentle traditional methods, but more importantly, of the connection to the land where the food comes from, the farmers, milkmen, and all those whose craft has made possible the survival of food traditions. 
The importance of movements like slow food, which was born in Italy, and the tenacity and hard work of specialists and all those who managed to achieve the so important denomination of origin status for products that have defined the identity, economy and social history of entire regions is of course, cause of admiration. But Dickey gives us one of the book's most valuable lessons, that we must, of course, protect and ensure the continuity of food traditions, but to fetishize the ingredients and food without taking the time to think about the actual circumstances that enabled these traditions to exist presents a far more dangerous risk, forgetting who we are and where we came from. Now, the book really plays several services to food studies in general, and in particular, of course, to understanding national cuisines. Because it is commonly assumed that gastronomy, just like history, is defined and reinterpreted only by those who have the means, power and authority to curate what they define as worth preserving. And often that is used to support a certain political ideology, a religious tradition, or any other ulterior motive. While it is true that certain documents, namely recipe books, can serve as evidence of the way a certain society eats in any given point in history, they are also defined by the personal taste or interests of the author, and more often than not, they are deeply aspirational and were written to shape food practices rather than to document them. As a historian, John Dickey really casts light upon not only the chronological evolution of the creation of Italian cuisine as a cultural construct, but also helps us see through the social dynamics that shaped it. Now, before we move on to the last section of the show, I want to tell you briefly about the author of this book, John Dickey, who was born in... Dundee, Scotland, but grew up in Leicestershire in England. He then attended Pembroke College in Oxford, where he read Italian and French, then completed a master's degree in critical theory at the University of Sussex, and there he also did a PhD in Italian literature. He was also appointed as Comendatore dell'Ordine della Stella della Solidarità Italiana, which I totally had to Google, and it means Commander of the Order of the Star of Italian Solidarity, which was given to him in 1995. And John Dickey currently works as Professor of Italian Studies at University College London. He is also the author of Cosa Nostra, A History of the Sicilian Mafia, and has presented a few docu-series on television about the history of Italian food. I think that this book, if you wish it to be, it can become a sort of blueprint, or at least a guide to help you understand how all cuisines in the world have evolved. So, gathering my thoughts about Delizia, here are my five reasons why I think you should read this book. Number one. This book tells us about the sinister power of marketing-created myths and how they are fueled by nostalgia and political ideologies. It really draws back the curtain to reveal the fact that national cuisines in general 
and Italy's in particular, was shaped by the food traditions of the Arab world with products from the Americas and the creativity of urban cooks who experimented and built repertoires of dishes that were born out of need, fusion and creativity. John Dickey trashes so many myths, not with irreverence, but with a gripping narrative filled with examples and explanations that really broadens our understanding of how civilization works. The second reason, and by far my favorite aspect of this book, is that in the words of John Dickey, we should take a deeper and closer look at the role that malnourishment, hunger, famine and violence have in shaping a country's food, because the tensions between everyday eating and elite dining is really the intersection where a greater picture can be seen. We often find comfort in the idea of traditions being born out of the need to preserve an idealized state of perfection, balance and happiness. But the truth is that many traditions are created during the absence of these things and actually reflect our deepest desires, fears and needs. We often think of Italian food as being part of a millenary tradition of bucolic abundance from the green Italian countryside. However, the truth is that even when the ingredients came from agricultural areas, the people with the power to appropriate and transform them into delicacies, following simple but clever combinations, were the inhabitants of the cities. So what we understand as Italian food is rather a variety of dishes from many regions that converged in cosmopolite urban centers and reflected indeed the best side of these cuisines, at least that's the premise of the author. And to illustrate this, the book offers a comparison between the cultural divide between the north and the south of Italy and their own economic and political history that shaped with these tensions their proverbial pantries. Number four, I enjoy the analysis that the author gives to immigration, the shifts in identity and cross-cultural pollination, and its effects on mainstream Anglo-American culture. It is all too easy, I think, to romanticize stories of immigration and how Italian communities became the beating heart of entire neighborhoods and cities that defined a new way of life. The truth is that it's all about tensions and language and cultural barriers. It is a story of segregation and counterculture and ultimately of the inevitable compromise, assimilation and appropriation. And again, I think this approach is more pertinent than ever when we think of our relationships to ethnic foods and how they can become embraced, not because consumers have a particular interest in the culture, the people and traditions that created those foods, but because they simply see the food as trendy and exotic. But the opportunity to create real intercultural dialogues is indeed laying there, ready for anyone to pick it up and talk about it. And last, it really made me think in many directions when it comes to cultural appropriation. As a Mexican, I often find myself turning my nose up to dishes or traditions that are called typical of a certain country, but were built on the back of ingredients that are native to Mexico. However, the book forced me to reframe the multiple effects that the Colombian exchange 
also had in my own national cuisine and how alarmingly decimated it would be if overnight all foreign products were taken away from Mexican pantries. But I also understood that there is a long historical process of experimentation and embracement of ingredients that gave us a result never imagined creations. And that in itself should be the cause for celebration and study. I recently read an article published back in 2017 by ITA about the new tensions between Italian nationalists and their problem with foreign foods that have become increasingly popular due to the new phenomena of mass migration of refugees. And it all took me back to the same place where my ignorance had kept me for a long time, because all food traditions in the world had been touched by cultural exchange, and a bowl of pasta and meatballs made with spaghetti that was inspired by Muslim noodles introduced in the Middle Ages, and tomatoes from Mexico with meatballs that emulate Moroccan dishes, is no less Italian than the coffee they so love that once came from Ethiopia. John Dickey deconstructs the notion of Italian food as one isolated and pure invention to questioning the monolithic view we have on national cuisines and teaches us to discern the influences, processes and reasons why it became the way it is, making us aware that national identities often also reflect the values of political ideologies that have done everything in their power to shape our behavior. So in short, Delizia is a book that tells us that if we are what we eat, we better know what's on our plate. And there you have it. I hope that a few or a lot of my findings in this book have resonated with you and inspire you to give it a go and see where it takes you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hungry Books, which was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. Scroll down to this episode's notes to click on the link to purchase a copy of Delizia, the epic story of the Italians and their food. And I have also left a link for the article I mentioned that was published by Ita and some of John Dickey's videos where he talks about Italian food. Help me get the word out about this podcast and share it with someone. You can write a little review for it and rate it on whichever podcast app that you are using to enjoy it right now. And if you want to connect with me, you can do so on Instagram. Find the show as Hungry Books Podcast or my other Instagram account is Rocio, R-O-C-I-O dot Carvajal C, that is C-A-R-U-V-A-J-A-L-C. And my email is easier, that is hello at pasachipotle.com. But you don't need to memorize any of that because you can find all the links down below. You can also make a donation via buymeacoffee.com and the link is also down below. 
In the next episode, I will take a look at a freshly priced book, which I just finished reading, called The Way We Eat Now, Strategies for Eating in a World of Change by B. Wilson. And, well, that's it for me. And for this episode, stay hungry. <laughs>